This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. We have a great one for you. It's episode 254, entitled The Messiah in Psalm 118. Yes, we're continuing to work through the Old Testament to look at the passages that helped shape the expectation of who the Messiah is going to be, what his role is going to be, and of course, importantly, what his relationship is to the God of Israel. And yes, we're still working through the Psalms. We only have a few more to go. This week we'll look at 118, and next week I think we will conclude the Psalms by looking at Psalm 100. And 32. So here are some of the questions I would like to explore in regard to this week's episode. First, what is the purpose of Psalm 118 and what were the original circumstances of its composition? This will be an interesting question because the way it's used in the New Testament is slightly different than the way that it was originally intended in the Hebrew Bible. Second, In what ways did the New Testament authors reinterpret the rejected stone in a messianic way? And lastly, how do the four gospel writers collectively portray Jesus as the agent of the true God in light of the contents of Psalm 118? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is a close look at Psalm 118. Now, this is a medium-length psalm, but most of the psalm is pretty straightforward, so we can read through it. It'll go pretty quickly, and then we'll stop and give a few comments on some of the more noteworthy passages within this psalm. Psalm 118, verse 1. Give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting, O let Israel say, His loving kindness is everlasting. O let the house of Aaron say, His loving kindness is everlasting. So, right here in the first three verses, it's very clear that this is a praise to God, and there is the call for Israel collectively to acknowledge the everlasting covenant faithfulness of Yahweh. But in verse 3, we have an interesting addition. The house of Aaron, which is the house that has maintained the priesthood, those priests that work in the temple, they are also to acknowledge the everlasting loving kindness, the covenant faithfulness of God. And this can be interesting as we move further into the psalm and we start to notice the temple themes. It's clear here that the house of Aaron is set out distinctively. Verse 4, O let those who fear Yahweh say his loving kindness is everlasting. From my distress I called upon Yahweh, Yahweh answered me and set me in a large place. Yahweh is for me, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Yahweh is for me among those who help me, therefore I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. 
It is better to take refuge in Yahweh than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in Yahweh than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of Yahweh, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me. In the name of Yahweh, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They were extinguished as a fire of thorns. In the name of Yahweh, I will surely cut them off. You pushed me violently so that I was failing, but Yahweh helped me. Yahweh is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. The sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of Yahweh does valiantly. The right hand of Yahweh is exalted. The right hand of Yahweh does valiantly. I will not die but live and tell of the works of Yahweh. Yahweh has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to Yahweh. This is the gate of Yahweh. The righteous will enter through it. That's verses 4 through 20. And most of it is pretty straightforward from what we've seen in the Psalms. There is the praise of Yahweh. There is the acknowledgement of the suffering that the psalmist is actually taken. There is the metaphor of describing enemies in terms of animals. There is a call for Yahweh to deliver and to rescue the psalmist. There is God acting as the protector, God acting as the warrior, and of course God acting as the one who disciplines. But towards the end here, in verse 19 through 20, it starts to shape up from a location and geographical standpoint a little bit more clearly for us. Open the gates of righteousness. This is the gate of Yahweh, and the righteous will enter through it. It seems here that we are now talking about the gates of the temple. The way in which the psalmist is going to find protection, the way that he's going to encounter Yahweh, in the way that Yahweh is going to function as a protector and defender and deliverer is by entering into the gates of the Jerusalem temple. This, of course, would indicate that this psalm was written during the time of the first temple. This is a pre-exilic psalm. Let's move on. Verse 21. I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me. And you have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is Yahweh's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Now, if we strictly look at this passage, verses 22 and 23, it seems to indicate, again, stones that the builders use. They collect a variety of stones and they put them together and they're used for a variety of purposes. This could be used for a particular gate, and the gate has a particular center stone, the chief cornerstone that kind of holds it together as the arch of the gate is erected and put together. But if a rock doesn't seem to fit well in this design, it's just kind of tossed to the side. But here we have a very curious suggestion that this rock, this stone, which the builders have kind of tossed aside, has actually become the most important 
cornerstone, the chief cornerstone. And what we actually see here is that this is something that Yahweh has actually wanted. This is Yahweh's doing. And it, the rejected stone, is marvelous in our eyes. Now, to be clear here, the psalm originally is strictly talking about a rejected rock, a rejected stone. And this is going to be important because the way that it's interpreted in the New Testament is it's going to be interpreted messianically. As we're going to see, there's going to be a messianic interpretation regarding the Son, namely the Son of God, which is a messianic title for the anointed king or the messianic king. That Son is going to be interpreted in light of the stone. More on this later. Let's continue with this psalm. Verse 25, O Yahweh, do save. We beseech you, O Yahweh, we beseech you. Do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. So here in verse 26, we have a couple of interesting points. We have the call to honor the blessing of one who comes in Yahweh's name. This is someone who is distinct from Yahweh, but he comes in the name of Yahweh, meaning he is Yahweh's agent. He bears the name of Yahweh, and as an agent who comes in the name of Yahweh, of course, he's going to have the rights and privileges of Yahweh. So we don't know who this person is, but there is a call that this person is blessed. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of Yahweh. And secondly, in verse 26, we have the reaffirmation that we are in the context of the temple. We have blessed you from the house of Yahweh. House of Yahweh, of course, is the temple. That is the place from which this psalm is being sung. And, of course, it is the place of refuge. Let's continue. We're almost finished. Verse 27, Yahweh is God. He has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God. I give thanks to you. You are my God. I extol you. Give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And that is the conclusion of the psalm. And we can again see the sense of sacrifice. There is a festival sacrifice, and it is, of course, put on top of the altar, the altar of sacrifice, reaffirming our suspicion that we are talking about the temple. This is the temple and the temple building. We're talking about this rejected rock that is involved in the temple, involving the temple gate. And this rock, of course, becomes the chief cornerstone. So it's very interesting that the New Testament writers would latch upon this particular psalm, likely in conjunction with the similar passage that is in Isaiah talking about the stone that the people tripped over, that Yahweh has set a stone where people tripped over, but those who believe in it will not be ashamed. And so we have this stone that gets rejected, it gets tripped over, but it seems to be part of the divine intention. It's part of the plan. It's part of God's purposes. It's a very important part of what God is doing in his salvation and his deliverance history. 
let's move to the New Testament. That's our second point. Point number two, the use of Psalm 118's rejected stone in the New Testament. So we noted the fact that there is a stone that the builders rejected in 118.22. We also noted that this is something that is the doing of Yahweh. This is something that Yahweh has planned all along and that it is marvelous in our eyes. That is Psalm 118, verse 23. But Jesus is going to offer this parable in the New Testament. Now, in the context of this parable, Jesus has entered into Jerusalem in Mark chapter 12, and he has entered into the temple, and he has suggested to his audience that he has privileges to build the temple, to clean up the temple, and to remove the terrible activities that are taking place in the temple that he disagrees with. And so the question that gets raised is in regard to Jesus' authority. Who is he? What sort of person are you to the point where you can claim to actually do these things? And this is where our passage picks up. This is Mark chapter 12, verse 1. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed, and so with many others, beating some and killing others. He had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son, but those vine growers said to another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read the scripture, the stone which the builders rejected? This has become the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that he had spoke the parable against him. So they left him and went away. That's Mark 12, verses 1 through 12. It's clear here that the parable deals with God planting a vineyard. That is quite clear because the opening quotation is from Isaiah chapter 5, and Yahweh is planting the vineyard, and vineyard, of course, represents Israel. And Yahweh, of course, sends a variety of servants and prophets, but the vineyard rejects those prophetic spokespersons that the owner of the vineyard has actually sent. There may even be an allusion here to the rejection of John the Baptist in the sense that one of them was actually wounded in the head, and John the Baptist had actually been beheaded in the story. But it's quite clear that the ultimate person that the owner of the vineyard is going to send is the son. But it's clear that the son is understood as the heir of the owner of the vineyard. 
And Jesus, of course, is speaking about himself in this parable. Son indicates son of God. Son indicates the king, indicates the Messiah, which, of course, would validate his claim for everything that he's been doing in the temple. It would validate the authority that he's claiming to have. But, of course, he doesn't outright say, I am the Messiah. He gives this parable, and he offers a variety of actions to demonstrate his messianic status. So it says in verse 6, they will respect my son. They interpret the son as the heir. That's true. The son is the heir of the father. But what they want to do is they want to kill him and make the inheritance for themselves. There's lots we can talk about this. We don't have the time for it right now. But what's interesting is that the rejection of the son is interpreted by Jesus with the quotation from Psalm 118 with the rejection of the stone. I'll say that again. The rejection of the son is interpreted by Jesus with the quotation from Psalm 118 as the rejection of the stone. And this is how this works. There was a messianic interpretation in which the stone was understood to refer to the sun. And this is because in Hebrew there was a well-known pun that you can already see in the pages of the Old Testament. There's a well-known pun in which the stone, in Hebrew, it's the word eben, was punned with the word for son, the word ben in Hebrew. So you got eben, the word for stone, and the word ben, the word for son. So the rejected son is interpreted as the rejected stone. And yet the stone that's rejected ultimately becomes the chief cornerstone, becomes the central point of the temple, again, validating the authority that Jesus claims as the Messiah to overturn the tables in the temple and to be the temple builder. And of course, Jesus also quotes the second part of the rejected stone passage. Here it's in Mark 12, verse 11, to where this came about from the Lord, it is marvelous in our eyes. This is something that Yahweh is behind as part of Yahweh's plans and purposes. So the key here is understanding the pun that was understood in regard to the Messiah. And there are a lot of passages to where this actually functions. And we can see this pun used by other New Testament writers, the Apostle Paul and others. Now this particular parable is not just in Mark, it's also in Matthew and Luke, demonstrating that those authors also saw this as something that was valuable to put in their descriptions, their biographies of Jesus. Now in the book of Acts, we have another quotation of this passage in a way that's very explicit. The book of Acts, of course, is noting that Jesus has been raised from the dead, but prior to being raised, he was rejected and killed. So, in Acts chapter 4, we can see this in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. 
He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief corner stone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That's Acts chapter 4, verses 8 through 12. So in this particular speech, Peter, speaking under the inspiration of the Spirit, indicates that Jesus Christ was crucified, but he was crucified by the rulers and the elders of the people. And when he quotes here, Psalm 118, verse 22, there are a couple of extra words that are put in in order to clarify the meaning of this, because the quotation specifically is stone which was rejected, the builders which became the chief cornerstone. But what gets added is he is the stone which was rejected. It's also added by you, indicating that it's the rulers and the elders are now the reinterpreted rejectors of this discarded stone. They are described as the builders, but, that word gets added, which became the chief cornerstone. So we have this additional language that's being used to clarify the builders who have rejected this particular stone. And of course, it's interesting that Jesus, the one who is crucified, is actually the stone that was rejected. And again, it's a messianic reinterpretation of a rejected rock involving the temple. And now this stone is understood messianically because of the Hebrew pun to where the sun is the reinterpretation of the stone. So that's a very interesting way that's used in the New Testament. Let's move to our third and final point, the use of Psalm 118's agency text in the New Testament. We talked about how there is a blessing upon the one who comes in the name of Yahweh, according to Psalm 118. There is an agent who comes in the name of Yahweh. He is clearly distinct from Yahweh. It's not blessed as Yahweh. It's the one who comes in the name of Yahweh. And all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, pick up this reference in regard to the agent of Yahweh, and they apply it to Jesus. All four gospel writers take this agent passage, and they apply it to Jesus. They all think that Jesus is the agent of Yahweh. Let's look at some of those passages. Matthew 21, starting in verse 8. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees, spreading them on the road. The crowds going ahead of them. And those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. It's Matthew 21, verses 8 through 9. So in the midst of this call, Hosanna, which is not a name, it is a call to be saved. Save us now. Save us now to the son of David, namely the one who comes in the name of Yahweh, Hosanna in the highest. The son of David is interpreted here by the Jewish people as the king. Son of David is the messianic king to whom belongs all of the promises of the Davidic covenant. And this king, this human descendant of David, member of the human race, but he is a lineal descendant from David's family tree, is the agent, the one who comes in the name of the Lord, drawing explicitly from Psalm 118. And these crowds 
understand that. They understand that the son of David is the agent of Yahweh. They don't think the son of David is Yahweh himself. They are clearly distinguished. There's no confusion here. The one who comes in the name of Yahweh cannot be Yahweh. That's the whole purpose of the agent. The agent is distinguished from the one who commissions the agent. Matthew quotes this passage again at the end of Matthew 23. In Matthew 23, 39, Jesus says, For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Matthew 23, 39. So two times in the gospel, Jesus is described as the agent of Yahweh by drawing upon this passage in Psalm 118. Once by the crowds, and another time by Jesus himself. Jesus himself acknowledges that he is the agent of Yahweh. Now this particular passage in Matthew also appears in the Gospel of Luke. And I've already mentioned that all four Gospel writers will draw upon this agent passage of Psalm 118 in regard to the triumphal entry. I'd like to look at the one in the Gospel of John because the Gospel of John uh, is very likely independent from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So in John 12, starting in verse 12, it says, On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. John chapter 12, verses 12 through 13. Very similar to the passage that we saw in Matthew, which is paralleled in Mark and Luke. But here, the agent who comes in the name of Yahweh is described as the king of Israel. The Israelite king, that's quite clear. The Israelite king is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So there you have it. All four gospel writers describe Jesus as the agent of God based on Psalm 118 and... We have many writers in the New Testament that see the rejected stone messianically to refer to the rejected son. And that is the impact of Psalm 118 onto New Testament messianic expectation. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Please join us next week as we look at our final psalm in our study. We'll be looking at Psalm 132 and the ways in which the Messiah is the descendant of David. Please look forward to our next episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we aim to promote the sound truths about the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. You can support us for absolutely free by subscribing on YouTube and iTunes, by giving us an honest review on iTunes, and by sharing an episode with your friends. If you'd like to offer a financial donation, you can check us out on PayPal. There is a link to PayPal in the notes of this particular episode. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care.